This is a short introduction to what I think is the most interesting part of Tolkien's life, his fiction, and that's not to say you don't get the, the basics. Welcome to All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. I'm William O'Flaherty from EssentialCSLewis.com. My guest today is Dr. Devin Brown, and he's no stranger to the podcast. He's back today to discuss a short biography on J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a friend of Lewis and, of course, the author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Dr. Brown's book is simply called Tolkien, but the subtitle is almost longer than the book. Welcome back to the show, Devin. Yeah, thanks, William. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, that subtitle is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> it sure is. Well, maybe you, you can tell us some more about it here in a second as we set you up with, uh, l- let's begin with uh, something I'm sure many listeners are thinking. There are no shortage of biographies on uh, Tolkien. So why did you write yours? Yeah, that's right. Anybody who wants to write a new biography uh, needs to either have some new revelation, a new cache of letters found in some dusty attic somewhere, or or it has to have some new 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 goal of presenting material. When I did my Lewis biography, I really tried to focus on Lewis's spiritual journey, something that had not, in my opinion, been done very well or very uh, deeply before. And with Tolkien, um, I'll give you that subtitle because that's where I go with it. It's Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. And as the subtitle suggests, it really traces the I think, interesting, incredible story of how this linguist, this philologist, uh, rather unknown outside of the friendly confines of Oxford, wrote this bizarre story, something the world had never seen before, about a little creature who lived in the hole in the ground, a hobbit, how it came to be published. And uh, it was a book that almost wasn't. And then, of course, he went on to become, with The Lord of the Rings, the most beloved author of the 20th century and is doing pretty well in the 21st century. And that's quite a story itself, too. Let's consider some more about your approach to this uh, biography and and how it's arranged. As noted, uh, it's not meant to provide all details that are known about his life. You do it in a three-part presentation. Why did you divide it in that versus maybe uh, four or five or or a different way? Well, like you mentioned, the the book isn't a comprehensive biography. I don't know that you learn (laughs) what Tolkien's great-grandfather's name was and when he lived and died. It's not one of those. Uh, those are available for people who who want it. But this is a short introduction to what I think is the most interesting part of Tolkien's life, his his, his fiction. And that's not to say you don't get the, the basics of how, where he was born in South Africa and his return to England, the death of his parents, his own undergraduate days at Oxford, his time in World War II, uh, his friendship with C.S. Lewis. You, you get all the basics. And so in that sense, it provides... I think a good introduction for people who want the general facts. Um, so yeah, the fact that it's rather short, uh, at the end of the day, I, I felt it sort of divided itself pretty well into just three parts, son and schoolboy, scholar and soldier, and finally storyteller and mythmaker. Let's go ahead and, and break that down, if you don't mind, and briefly take each part. Uh, without giving away the farm, then, let's briefly explore that first part. What are a few of the major points readers might learn from the first section, the son and schoolboy? Yeah, the thing that people who know something about Tolkien know is that the creation of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings really grew out of some of his loves that began when he was just a child, when he was a boy. His mom took him back to England after his father passed away in South Africa, and they lived in a rural uh, southern area south of Birmingham. And you learn that uh, if you want to go looking for the Shire, you don't go to New Zealand and the places where Peter Jackson filmed. You should just go to this 
pastoral and still today somewhat rural area south of Birmingham, uh, which he grew up loving. There was an old mill there. There was an old willow tree. Um, and, and people who know the Hobbit say, yeah, I, oh, I, I see where he got that. Uh, his mother instilled in him a love of languages, which, of course, we see throughout the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. She also instilled in him a love of story and myth, which he, he savored all of his life. Uh, and I guess the final thing that she instilled in him was was his deep Christian faith, which also became uh, a huge factor in his writing the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. So, um, you know, there, there's a famous saying that the child is the father of the man. I think Wordsworth might have said that. And uh, truly, when you want to study any any famous writer, you want to go back enough to kind of see how these things got started, where they came from. Because once we finally get to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you're thinking, man, where'd that come from? The world had never seen anything like it now. And of course, if you go to a Barnes & Noble now, there's a whole shelf of, I would say, Tolkien wannabes. Uh, a whole shelf of science fiction <laughs> fantasy that, that he, he really you know, spawned this 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 modern version of. And when he did it, uh, Lewis called it uh, like lightning from a clear blue sky. Uh, this this strike of amazing power and I would say possibly divinity coming out of nowhere. Uh, having said that, if you look back at, at his boyhood um, and, and what he did when he went to school, he had a group of friends called the TCBS, uh, the Tea Club Bavarian Society. They met in Barrow's store. Uh, it was an early forerunner of the Inklings. And so I, I guess what I wanted to show is that just like with anybody today that who, who's a genius, who's, who's done something incredible, it, it's not an overnight success. These things grew organically out of things that had come before. And I would say in Tolkien's life in, in quite a providential way. All right. Now uh, the uh, second part then is scholar and soldier, which is something that the casual person who's familiar with uh, Tolkien would not necessarily know. What are some of the things that you uh, highlight in uh, this part? You know, the scholar part is when he goes off to Oxford and becomes a pretty serious student. And uh, I say becomes because, well, he wasn't a very serious student. He was a very good student if he liked what he was studying, but not so much if he didn't. So I trace his days. You know, Later on, he gets offered, you know, a chair at Leeds, then comes back to Oxford and gets offered one professor's chair and then a second one. And that's that's an amazing thing. Uh, Lewis himself was never offered a chair at Oxford. And here's Tolkien being offered, too. Um, but it began with him as an undergraduate. So he, he becomes a scholar. He goes off to Oxford as an undergraduate. And I'll just say this. He got a minor scholarship because, um, well, he, he hadn't applied himself the way he needed to. And then there's this big set of tests, the honor mods. And, uh, well, he got kind of a, a weak second. And actually, he, he suggested that they were being gracious to them, that he could have lost his scholarship and been sent down. Fortunately, his tutor, his tutor, Rather than taking uh, offense that, at the fact that his brilliant young charge was not studying what he should, really realized the problem was that he was in the wrong field. He he went there thinking he was going to study classics, uh, which is Greek and Latin, as most people know. And he said, look, this is not your passion. You need to shift over to English, Middle English, Old English. These guys are what you really like. And uh, when Tolkien did, the light came on and, and he graduated with a first he finishes his undergraduate degree while World War I is breaking out. And as soon as he graduates, he, he goes off into World War I and fights at the Battle of the Somme. A lot of people know that. And, uh, you know, he gets trench fever. And uh, there was nothing they could do for it other than bring you home and, I guess, give you a lot of chicken soup. There was nothing 
medicinally they can do other than pull you out of the action and keep you warm and dry for a while. It took him a long time to get over it, and this, of course, uh, probably saved his life. The rest of his battalion was virtually all wiped out in the coming days and weeks there at the Somme. And uh, Tolkien uh, recuperates, and it takes him a long time. He has lots of relapses. He'll be out for a few days, in for a few days. But during this time, he gets a big notebook, uh, kind of a famous story, and uh, begins writing the stories that will be the deep history of Middle-earth, the, the stories that we find in the Silmarillion. So um, not to say that his soldier days don't enter at all into The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Anybody who has a casual acquaintance with The Hobbit knows that what? There's a big battle of five armies coming uh, summer. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Tolkien drew on his memories of World War II, uh, probably no more so than when uh, Frodo and Sam in The Lord of the Rings are crossing the Dead Marshes. Tolkien absolutely said this. This is probably from my recollection of, recollection of World War One, the 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 no man's land where not a stick, not a blade of grass grew, um, nothing was there. That the rotting corpses. So so he draws on that. Interestingly enough, the, the Lord of the Rings comes out after World War II, and everybody wants to say, "Aha! You're writing about World War II. You're writing about the Nazis, and you're writing about uh, Stalin." And he says, "Well, I appreciate you saying that, and surely there's some applicability." But that's what—that's not what I was drawing on. Uh, Tolkien's son, Christopher, was a uh, member of the RAF in World War II, but Tolkien himself fights in World War One. Then, now in your final section, the third part, this is entitled "Storyteller and Mythmaker," and this is the largest section. Uh, why was it the largest section, and then what can people take away from it? Yeah, so this is where I finally tell you know my big subtitle. This is this is how the obscure Oxford professor finally writes The Hobbit, a book that almost wasn't, and then uh, goes on to write The Lord of the Rings. And when I say it was a book that almost wasn't, it, it began uh, in an odd way, and, and, and anybody who knows the basics of Tolkien has heard this story. Tolkien's grading a large stack of, of school exams, what we would call... I don't know, SATs or ACTs. Anyway, they have a big essay part. Uh, and he's got this big stack of what we might call blue books sitting there in his study uh, there in Oxford. And everybody else is out enjoying the summer afternoon. And he's in there grading these tests. Um, a tedious job, but a, a way for um, a, a not so wealthy Oxford professor to support his growing family. And he gets to a page in one of these blue books that these high school seniors have written. And it's completely blank. And, of course, he's thrilled. That means he doesn't have to read it or grade it. He writes, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And he tells us that at the time he had no more idea of what or who a hobbit was than we do. But he's being someone who's interested in names and, and things like that, he decides to see what he can find out. He begins a story uh, to his children at the time. Now, there were other stories. He had told them the story of a boy named Carrots who had red hair. There had been a story of a, a dog named Rover. Uh, who got turned into a mechanical dog. So there'd been other, there'd actually been a story of this uh, odd little creature named Tom Bombadil. So he adds the story of the Hobbit to this nighttime story he tells his boys. And before long, he starts getting some of the details wrong. I mean, as we know, there's what, 13 dwarves and each one has a certain color hood and different things about it. And so one of his sons was always correcting him. Now, last night you told him, told us that guy had a blue hood. So apparently Tolkien started to write it down. And uh, like most of his stories, he wrote most of it down and he didn't quite have it all finished. And then um, a friend of his took ill, um, the mother superior at a local convent. And to comfort her in her recuperation, Tolkien lent her this unfinished story. She happened to love it. 
she had a student staying there at the convent who borrowed the manuscript, who, who liked it. This student had an old roommate who was then working for Allen and Unwin in Oxford. And, man, this never happens today. She passed it on <laughs> to this editor, and the editor came to Tolkien and said, look, if you'd finished this, I think we might really be interested in publishing it. Anybody who tries to get something published today knows that, you know, an editor doesn't go looking for you. You're to go looking for them and you end up in the slush. <laughs> anyway, uh, apparently Tolkien had the story up to the defeat of Smog, but that's not quite the ending, as we know. Um, so he, he finished up the rest, sent it in, and then through a rather long process, because he loved to edit, he loved to niggle, he finally got it done and it came out in 1937. Well, that's the storyteller part, right? He's telling this rather simple story of Bilbo Baggins, who lived in a hole in the ground in Hobbiton. The publisher, like publishers today, said, well, we need a sequel, especially for next Christmas. Can you get us uh, a new Hobbit story by next Christmas? And, and he said, yes, I should have it done by sometime in the fall. And uh, in perhaps the greatest understatement in literary history, well, it was not done until about um, 12 years later. So he begins working on the sequel to The Hobbit. He discovers, well, there really isn't another story about Bilbo. And I'll tell you, this is an encouragement for all writers. He started to, to write another story about Bilbo. And he said, well, why would Bilbo go on another adventure? And the answer he came up with is, well, he's run out of money. All that He didn't bring home that much money. He was going to bring home one-fourteenth of the uh, treasure from Smog. Well, he didn't. He just brought home two chests, one of silver, one of gold, as much as a small pony could carry. He's out of money. He's got to go on another adventure. But... Tolkien himself knew that that was forcing the story. Bilbo's not going to run out of money, and even if he did, it's not going to send him on adventure. That's not the right thing to, to put him on adventure for. So make a long story short, at some point he said, well, what about one of his relatives? Uh, what if he adopted uh, you know, a nephew? And pretty soon Frodo came into the story, and the new Hobbit, as it was called then, became Frodo's Adventures. Well, if you open up uh, the, the, the preface to the Lord of the Rings, it begins, this is a tale that grew in the telling. And before long, it wasn't hardly anything like The Hobbit. And it certainly wasn't done in time for next year. And in fact, Tolkien completely stopped working on it a couple times. Each time he quit working on it, C.S. Lewis was there encouraging him. Uh, there's a famous line from one of Tolkien's letters where he describes Lewis's influence. He was for long my only audience. Now, that's just just one of the nuttiest things to ever hear literary history, that this book that has sold 150 million copies at one point was kept alive by one person who was interested in it, C.S. Lewis. But for his unsensing desire for more, I should never have brought The Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Well, he gets done in around 1949, I believe, and uh, goes back and forth with edits. He's trying to get a deal where they'll publish The Silmarillion, but nobody wants it. And eventually it comes out in 1954. Uh, and, and again, crazy story. Uh, Alan and Unwin is absolutely sure they're going to lose money. Matter of fact, they're just <laughs> of how much. Uh, a famous letter from Sir Stanley Unwin to his son. Um, if you, you can lose up to a thousand pounds. In 1954, that's a lot of money to lose. If you, cause it, you know, they thought it was a great work. It would enhance the, uh, the, I don't know, claim to, literariness of their their house now oddly enough it's never been considered a great literary masterpiece by by the academics but it, it <laughs> didn't lose a thousand pounds gradually slowly it began by word of mouth to to gain traction um and it wasn't like the harry potter books where people were camping out at a bookstore the night before but it did you know gain 
reputation by word of mouth. And by the time they got to the third books, they had to reprint the little tiny run of the first book. So, so they, it, there was the hint there that it was going to be something more than a, a money loser. It takes off, it's in paperback, and it gradually has another second, third, fourth printing. But it wasn't in, uh, in hardcover, but it wasn't until it got into paperback that it sort of took on this cult status. And then finally, you get to the end of the 20th century. To, uh, Tolkien dies in, in 1973. And at the end of the 1900s, uh, people who were aware back then, I know some of your readers may be too young to remember then, there are all these lists, author of the century, and of course, author of the millennium, and all those things. <laughs> who was the best? Best of this, best in that. And so that's how I opened my book, by describing this this sort of tallying that was done uh, at the end of the 20th century. And on the top of all all the lists of best author, best books, best storyteller, most beloved book, you're going to find Tolkien and either Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit pretty close, or if you're limited to just books for children, The Hobbit's up there. And so this obscure Oxford philologist becomes, by any tally, the most beloved author of the century. Well, for those who aren't too familiar with the life story of uh, Tolkien, this will be a great introduction. I've had a chance to read it, and I think it's really good. I'm not a, a Tolkien expert. I'm more in, into C.S. Lewis. And then for, for those who are very familiar, if they're wanting some refresher, this book would be good as well. Well, now, uh, you, you've been on the show several times uh, talking about Lewis and, and, and other things. We'll have links in the show notes related to the, the Lewis aspects. But let's take a quick moment for you to discuss a couple other books related to uh, Tolkien that you did. One we did a short series on, and a link will be in the show notes for that. But for our time now, just can you compare and contrast the two, of course, giving the uh, titles of the other Tolkien books you've done? Yeah, I'd be glad to, of course. Um, and I know that a lot of your uh, listeners are either Lewis fans, maybe Tolkien fans, but also probably have an interest in writing themselves. And I'll just say this. If you're out there thinking you want to do a book on Lewis or Tolkien, good for you. We need another third generation of Lewis Tolkien scholars. So I want to encourage everybody. I will say this, having a movie makes a lot of difference. Uh, people have started seeing the, the trailer for the third installment of The Hobbit. And with each of those trailers going out, millions of people are more aware. They're more interested in Tolkien. Christmas is coming up. Uh, they're looking to buy something for the Hobbit lover in their life. So it makes a book, a commercial book, way more possible to have a movie. Uh, so Two years ago, when the first movie came out, um, I did my first book, The Christian World of the Hobbit, where, again, I tried to pick something that hadn't quite been done before, which was to discuss how The Hobbit and Bilbo's story, as it continues on to The Lord of the Rings, uh, has a Christian element in it. Uh, Tolkien has a very famous uh, statement in one of his letters that says, uh, I'm a Christian, and that fact can be deduced from my writing. And deduced is an interesting word. The, the suggestion is, is that uh, it's not going to be there on the surface, uh, and and people who are concerned, the Christian world, the Hobbit, you know, there's no churches, there's no prayers, there's no Bible, there's no priest. I get all that. And uh, if you're concerned that uh, somehow I'm trying to make the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings into a sermon, I think that would be one of the worst things you could do to it. Nevertheless, there's Tolkien's statement that we can deduce that he's a Christian from his writing. So I set off to say, where can we find that? And uh, he also says it can be deduced from my fiction. We we find things about him and his faith and his letters and his essay, but we don't necessarily have to go there to find out how The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have a, a Christian foundation. After I finished that with the first movie, uh, there was a second movie that came out, as people know, and my publisher said, hey, is there a second Hobbit book? And uh, we thought for a while, and I tried not, I didn't want to repeat the first one, and I hadn't thought of a biography at that point. So my, my editor said, look, Let's just be honest. There are certain stories that aren't going to carry the Christian world, the Hobbit, because it has the word Christian in or many people who won't pick it up. 
Would you be willing to, to talk about the lessons that we find, the moral lessons in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, without making it overtly Christian? And in doing this, you'd be taking the same tack that Tolkien did. So I like that idea. They like that idea. So uh, last year I wrote Hobbit Lessons and uh, a map for life's unexpected journeys where we're supposed to walk with Bilbo and Frodo and learn what they learn and experience what they learn and experience. And so we come back with whatever they bring back from the journey. We bring back that same kind of treasure. So I wrote that in Hob- I wrote that up and called it Hobbit Lessons. And it's it's shorter and lighter than The Christian World and The Hobbit. And then, of course, with the uh, third movie coming out, we put our heads together and said, well, why not a biography? Well, that makes perfect sense. Now, of course, for people who haven't figured out, we are doing this interview, recording it at least just before the third movie is out. Uh, let's uh, wrap up, though, uh, Devin, by having you address just uh, in closing to summarize why readers should consider going to their local bookstore or online to pick up your book simply called Tolkien. Yeah, I would just say this. There are a lot of people who will see the movie and become more interested in the, the person who created this. I mean, you think about Peter Jackson, the army that that, that produced those films, whether The Lord of the Rings or, or The Hobbit. Yeah, it all came from the mind of one person. And, and how did that happen? I think that's an incredible question. Uh, that thing that now takes dozens and dozens and thousands and thousands of people to make came from the mind of one person. And if people really want to learn how the, the Hobbit came to be in The Lord of the Rings, then I would send her my book. It's a quick read, available at all the local places, Amazon, ChristianBook.com, and probably at your local bookstore. So, All right. Well, sounds great. Well, Devin, thanks for being with me today. It was my pleasure. It's great talking to you again. And I want to thank also the listener for being uh, with us today. Be sure to uh, check the show notes at EssentialCSLewis.com for links to the other shows that Devin has been with me on Lewis as well as Tolkien. Those notes uh, can also be found directly where I host the show, allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. That's where you can also hear or download other past shows, which include an interview with uh, Douglas Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, and a few other talks that I gave earlier in the year. Thanks again for listening. 